Within a sporting organization, you often hear those stories about the players, coaches, and managers. But it's not as common to hear the stories of those individuals working behind the scenes. I'm Taiwo Adeshikbin, a sports journalist partnering with Arizona Sports Collective to share the stories of various stakeholders in the sporting world. In terms of just mental health, I think it's just important for kids to be outside. It's important for kids to engage with other kids because nutrition and healthy living and wellness and all that stuff is 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 my own personal mission. That's all like benefits for anybody. And that's Chioma Atanmo, nutritionist and wellness coach, as well as the leader for the community programs for a sporting KC. How did your upbringing how did that differ compared to most Americans? I'm first generation, so my parents immigrated here. I was born and raised in the Bay Area. My older sister was born in Nigeria, but moved here when she was like three or four years old. So being, I was, even though I was born in America, I feel like I had a very traditional Nigerian upbringing. So from the clothes I wore to the food I ate to how we spoke at home, it was a different experience. So it's kind of like, eating rice <laughs> multiple times a week <laughs> is normal. And my parents were also pastors. So I think I just had a very conservative, sheltered upbringing where I felt like I still had a very much like traditional Nigerian upbringing. So um, I think it just differed in terms of being in church was a priority a lot of times. Um, I'll talk maybe a little bit about how I gravitated to sports because I actually wow. use that as a outlet to get away from being in church all the time uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> um, things from like my name and you know people struggling to say my name or because I was born in America I didn't know my my family's native language Igbo growing up so being in Nigerian spaces sometimes you're just like if I don't know the language you're not considered like African-American because you're Nigerian-American. So it was also this like identity crisis of like, where do I fit? Because I'm still black, but how, where do I fit here? So sports was very much an outlet for me to, yeah, figure out who I was. When you play sports, it doesn't matter what you look like. So as long as you're good, <laughs> you yeah. can find yourself on a team. So um, yeah, sports is definitely an outlet for me. You said that you lived a pretty conservative life and sports was an outlet. You did track, you did soccer. How did you get to that point where you could actually get involved? Were your parents encouraging of sports? Yeah. You know, so my mom was, my mom was very much an advocate of playing sports. She played in middle school and high school. So when my dad was kind of like, why do you want to play this sport? Um, or like, it's too aggressive. Like, I don't want you to get hurt. And I can understand it's coming from a level of like, they want to protect you. Um, but my mom was also just like, there's a source of, of strength and you learn skills that you don't really like learn in school. So she advocated for all of us to play sports. I'm one of six kids. So I'm the second oldest, four girls, two boys. And then I would say like my teammates and the parents, they really helped with the legwork of, you know, maybe like picking me up for practice, taking me home and, you know, making sure that my mom didn't have anything to worry about. Cause I think going back to that conservative upbringing of just being very sheltered, I would say it's more of sheltered versus like conservative. Awesome. You met Heber uh, out here working for FC Tucson. What made yeah. you pursue a career with that team? Yeah, so I couldn't play sports in college and I had a knee injury 
Um, then my fitness dropped. I was like gained weight. And I think that's like almost every athlete story. It's like once sports is removed from your life, you're just like, what happens? And your body just, you know, blah. <laughs> and you're kind of figuring out like, what, do, what, what are the next steps? So when I couldn't play soccer anymore, I still, I still wanted to find a way to stay connected to the game. And my friend had worked in the career services department and actually was like, Hey, I know you like love soccer. I went to high school with her. She's like, there's this internship that's happening. It's in Tucson. I went to school at the U of A and most sports opportunities were in Phoenix. So I was like soccer Tucson in my backyard. Okay. How can I get involved? And yeah, I just volunteered. I was just interning. And then it just led from one thing to another. I felt like I just consistently showed up. I got like addicted to like the fast paced, like environment. I loved that soccer was still very much culturally diverse. Like, and so even MLS, when they were coming here to use our facilities, being in Arizona, sometimes you don't see a lot of people that look like you represented in spaces. So I was just encouraged to see like, okay, there's black players, but like there's black players that come from different parts of the world. And then there's Hispanic players, there's Latin players, there's Jamaican, Haitian, like Italian, all these, all these players that I'm like, and they love soccer. And I just love how soccer brings people together. So I just kept asking for more responsibilities and I kept sticking around and Mm -hmm. more jobs opened up and eventually became an intern, then became assistant operations manager, then became the director of operations, became the fitness coach, nutritionist, held a lot of multiple um, roles. And yeah. So you said you held a number of roles, but would you say that there was one main thing that you did, like maybe for the longest period of time when you were with the club? I would say the operations role was the longest one. And that was because that's, you need, that's, you, you need that. <laughs> it's like, um, the club wouldn't operate if operations wasn't a thing. And especially with a club that was at the PDL level, you're, you wear many hats. In our PDL season two, I would say we operated in different seasons. In the beginning of the year, it was MLS preseason where we were primarily focused on operations. Then in the PDL season, it was operations, nutritionist, fitness coach, um, a mix of all those. And you said you ended up taking upon a role doing the nutrition. I imagine that you had your bachelor's before then, and then you jumped into that role. The funny thing is, is that when I wasn't able to play soccer anymore and I had like some health challenges, I had left school for a period of time because I didn't know what I wanted to study. I was actually studying nursing at the time, then switched to sports medicine, and I still didn't feel fulfilled in that um, degree. So I took some time off and just volunteered my time with the um, head fitness coach. And I was just the assistant working for him. Um, Eventually went back to school, got my nutritional science degree, and then started actively doing that. But I was still like interning and getting exposure to all those things. So even at the U of A, working with athletes there, taking classes, working at the community college level and trying to get as much um, experience as I could. Given that you weren't sure for some point of time, like what did you see about nutrition that made you want to pursue that route? It all went back to me not having sports anymore. And I think as an athlete, we're, we were focused on, okay, you eat for the match, you eat for recovery. It was always like an event we were preparing for, but I felt like there was never a discussion as to like, what happens when you're not training? What happens when 
you're not playing anymore because you just ate because you were burning so many calories. It was just like, eat what you can. So you don't like pass out. (laughs) And so when I got to college and I was still exercising, I like was a personal trainer, but I was still struggling with like my weight. And I was just like, I feel like I'm eating okay, but why is my body like not the way I want it to be? And so I realized that food was a huge part that I think as athletes, it's hard for us to um, understand how to eat for our bodies, how to eat for our, how to eat for our position. And then after you're done playing, okay, you can't eat as much as you normally would because you're not burning as many calories, but what are foods that for our culture, rice was still very much something that I wanted to eat, but I couldn't eat it the way I used to when I was playing three sports. So understanding what is that portion size for me now? What should I be eating? What am I eating too much of listening to my body and all those things? And I felt like no one taught me this as an athlete. Nobody talks about this. It's just like fuel, 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 eat as much as you can pound whey protein, creatine. Like how can you get your muscles popping abs? Like I just felt like that was a missing piece that I felt like nobody taught any athlete. So I went back to school to study that. And I wanted to bring this message to athletes. Cause I feel like when the sports is taken away from you. That's a part of your identity that it just, it's a, it's a hard place to come out of. And I think food is the one way to help you create a new identity for yourself and you have to eat every day. So what are you eating every day? So just creating that awareness around it. So that's what made me come back to it. And yeah. And then I wanted to just like teach other people how to do that. So they're not going through this, like what is going on with my body after I'm not eating I'm not playing a certain sport anymore. And I'm excited. We're going to get to that too. But with your nutrition background, you then went on to sporting Casey, which is in Missouri. I went to the university of Missouri. So I am definitely familiar with Missouri. (laughs) Uh, How would you describe your experience uh, working as a woman of color in a professional setting? I feel like it's always like a loaded question because you're kind of just like, you're like, what do I want to talk about today? What has happened recently? <laughs> what has happened? You know, so I would say that visibility is something that I didn't recognize was important for women of color in terms of having young black girls seeing, you know, me in a certain position or speaking up in certain ways or using my social media platform to speak the way I do or speak on issues that I want to speak on. So I would say the challenges have been understanding first, like, what is your role? Do you have the right support to push initiatives forward? Because clearly I'm here for a reason, knowing when to, and I don't want to say like knowing when to speak up, but I think as Black women, we're always thinking of like, well, if, if I'm the only one always speaking up, then I always look like the one who's like disagreeing with everybody. So I feel like there's all these things that we think about with like, okay, how can I get my point across? Can I say this with just me or do I have to have a meeting before the meeting, a meeting after the meeting to get people to advocate for an idea that I know may not be as received? I just feel like there's just all these like strategies Mm-hmm. we have to think about and um it can be exhausting but i was telling my friend today that i'm just like not every day has to be a fight of some sort of like what am i um what am i fighting for today it's like cuz also it's like our own mental health i think after what happened in 2020 like people are leaning a lot on black people in corporate spaces to lead 
the charge on a lot of these racially sensitive issues. So it's kind of like, you don't always have to be that leader. When are you telling people like, Hey, it's time for you to educate yourself. It's not my responsibility to always take lead on these things. So how can you empower people to do some of the research on their own, but like you're still there as a voice to, you know, facilitate and guide some of those conversations. And hopefully you have, you know, people that you feel like you can be open and honest with. And I feel like I have that here where I can have those honest discussions with people, but it's definitely been a challenge. And I think there's a lot of, I feel like the black people in corporate spaces where we find ourselves being the only one, I just always tell them to like, just breathe, understand you're not by yourself. You can ask for help. And given that you are with for those listening that have no idea, Sporting KC, they're a professional soccer team in the MLS league. But given that you are pretty much, I mean, in America, working for the highest league in soccer. So I imagine that they do have a certain amount of respect for you, but what helped you gain that respect among like your peers and the people within that organization? Networking and building authentic relationships is huge. When I worked with FC Tucson, and, and Phoenix rising a little bit, it was running preseason, I feel like was such a blessing because I was in one place and now I had all of these teams coming to Tucson to use our facilities, use our field. So I was networking with the coaches, with the GMs, with the owners, the fitness coaches, nutrition questions, getting an understanding as to like, what are the needs on your team and, and understanding personalities and egos and all those things. And so um, sporting always stuck out as the most professional. So even before I got this job, I had a, a pretty good relationship with the coaching staff for about like six or seven years. So even when I came here, it wasn't like I'm just coming out the blue with a resume. It was like, we've been coming to Tucson for preseason. She's helped us with our training. She's helped us facilitate X, Y, and Z. She's I had a track record of working hard and being trustworthy, understanding the culture where it wouldn't be, um, yeah, it just wasn't coming out the blue. And even when I did move to Kansas City, working in the front office is completely different than the technical side that I felt like I worked a little bit more on in preseason in Arizona. So um, in the office, I felt like a strategy is just getting to know people, like getting those one-on-one time and understanding who people are, what their goals are, how you can help support people, Mm -hmm. get to know people outside of just the office. Mm -hmm. uh, Because I feel like that's where the deals happen. That's where new positions are negotiated. That's where new opportunities are brought up. That's where all like the inside information happens. So I would say building networking and building those authentic relationships and like following up with people being genuine with how you're asking about how people's days are and all that stuff. So, okay. So you're now the community programs leader for the team. What exactly does your role entail? Yeah. So I moved into that role in May of last year. So before that I was in um, the youth soccer department, primarily doing tournaments, events, working with our academy affiliates, coaching education, all that stuff and community programs. It primarily is around our nonprofit, which is the victory project. And it's an in-house foundation that we have. So I would say about 80% of my role is um, fulfilling like those pillars around our nonprofit. And we just recently on International Women's Day, also my birthday, announced our new mission. <laughs> um, 
that the Victory Project were on this, the jersey for sporting. So that was really cool for because for the first time, an MLS club is having a nonprofit on their on our jersey. So it was cool to make history in that sense. But also, we use this opportunity as a time to expand our mission. So our mission primarily before was focusing on kids with cancer. Now it's kids with cancer, kids with disabilities and soccer for all kids, which is providing more access to the game. So in my role is providing, creating those programs to help kids get more access to the game, providing financial assistance for kids who either wanna come to a clinic want to play on a team, come to a sporting game, providing opportunities for kids with disabilities to still engage and play on the field. And especially with COVID, providing opportunities for people to be outside and have that impact. Um, It's impacted the mental health of kids, like tremendously just being inside. Yeah. So I would say it's primarily just around community programming, uh, making sure that our players also feel supported in their own community efforts. Uh, We work with Black Players for Change. We have a couple players on our team that are affiliated with that group Um, and just finding ways to support the community, support our players, making sure that our fans understand how we're um, helping out the community, telling those stories. Mm-hmm. So marketing, storytelling, all of that stuff plays a role, but I would say it's just the more the community community impact. Okay. So we talked a little bit about community involvement and I can clearly see that you have a huge passion for nutrition. So we're going to get right into it. But before we do that, um, I want to ask you um, about your experience regarding to your diagnosis with a benign tumor in your breast. And I know you said that that experience gave you a new perspective about health. Can you elaborate on Mm -hmm. that? Yeah. So I would say that in, in school, like I studied nutrigenetics, nutrigenomics, biochemistry, all the things. It's like I was on the pre-med route for nutritional sciences. So learning how your body responds to food was like, like mind blowing because especially with cancer too, it's, um, I started making my own deodorant and cause I, I was reading about the aluminum in deodorant and how that can cause, you know, um, tumors or just cause, you know, um, a buildup of scar tissue and all that stuff around your breast tissue, uh, breast cancer does run in my family. So it was also like, how am I being mindful of what I eat to make sure that this benign tumor doesn't turn cancerous. My physician told me not that having surgery to remove it because I've had it for so long, wouldn't be, um, beneficial. And so it's just measuring it, making sure that it doesn't grow. It doesn't move all those things. So, um, food plays a huge role in that. And if you have a, a, a diet high in sugar that can feed cancer cells. So, um, that was just a, an awakening of like, okay, I have to just be very mindful of, um, what I eat every day, even my stress levels. We know that cancer can thrive off of so many different, um, just harmful environments in the body. So you talk about stress level, but working in a professional setting, I mean, that's more than stress. How do you manage? I've, it's taken me, I've been in this space for almost 10 years. And I would say, I feel like after the eighth year (laughs) is when I got better at it. I've hit burnout so many times and it's almost like a way of, I don't want to say it's a way of passage in the sports industry because it shouldn't be that way, but I felt like I needed to hit that to know what I didn't want. And so how to set those personal boundaries with work-life balance, understanding what job 
you wanted in the sports industry, what's realistic, sustain, um, and sustainable for you. Even my, even my wellness coaching business called mindful appetite is, is around teaching professional young professionals, teaching athletes, how to prioritize their wellness again, because we can grind, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle. But if we're hitting burnout and we're tired and we're not well, it's hard to, it's hard to, to be a team player where when you're stressed, you're, you're in a very selfish mindset because you're in survival mode. We're just living in times where people are just, it's a heightened stressful time right now. And so I feel like how we manage our stress, how we eat, how often we're moving our bodies, getting our bodies, um, blood flow, like just all those things are just things that it's, it's easy to forget about when you're just on this constant hustle and grind. So I'm not perfect, but I've been doing a lot better mm-hmm. with scheduling my PTO and not explaining when I need to take time off to some people, wow. because sometimes it's none of their business. Some people can look in, I feel like everyone <laughs> thinks that they're doing more than what, like, oh my God, it's, it's like bragging about being busy is like, yeah. that's not success to me anymore. Before that was like, I always want, I want to be booked and busy, uh-huh. booked and busy. And it's like, <laughs> no, cause like how that's not sustainable. So yeah. How are you managing your PTO? How are you taking intentional time off your time off that you do have? Is it refilling your cup or is it draining you? Like the people, all those things, right? I needed to go through all of those burnout moments to finally figure out that I'm just like, okay, I need to be strict with my boundaries, but also like, I need to constantly reinforce those boundaries, not only with other people, but myself. So what standard am I going to hold myself to? I feel like I have a good grip on it now, but it is hard because you have to constantly reinforce those boundaries. And sometimes you have those weeks where you just suck it up and know like, Hey, this is going to be a a crazy week, but Hey, next week I have Friday off and I'm going to make sure that I'm literally off. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you. So as a nutrition and wellness coach, and you briefly mentioned, um, obviously about your business, but, um, I want to know what do you find most fulfilling about kind of that job that you have? I would say it's, it's reminding people that they can reimagine a new reality for themselves. I feel like we go through life thinking that being busy, our knees hurting, being bloated, tired, and just low energy is normal because that's what so many people are used to. And reminding people that that doesn't have to be your reality. And that maybe the doctor gave you a diagnosis of like, Hey, you have to be on these pain meds for the rest of your life. It's like, how are we doing our part to make sure that our bodies are healthy and well? So I get the most joy when people have those aha moments of like, it doesn't mean that you have to be in the gym 90 minutes for four, four times a week, or you have to eat kale every day. It's like, mm-hmm. I still eat Nigerian food. And I also want to remind people that, Hey, there are foods that are native to your culture that are healthy, but just because what I was taught in school was a very Eurocentric type of plate. It's reminding people that, Hey, your food, your cultural food is also healthy for you. So how can we continue to incorporate that into your daily um, diet? So you're also feeling connected to your culture. You feel the joy and the community and this, and the social part of, of food. So I just love empowering people to, 
to do that. Yeah. You don't, there's not one way to live healthy. It's sometimes your weeks, you have different priorities. If you're a, a, you know, a, a single mother, or then you have more kids or you're married or you have, there's, you're in college, you're a young prophet. There's all these different like needs that your body has at those moments in your life. So it's just reminding people of like, Hey, this is what healthy can look like for you. So that's what I love. But what, like, what needs to happen for them to have that aha moment that you said, like, what do they need to see? Do you think? A lot of it is options. I think diet culture has trained us into thinking that healthy looks like one way. So it's providing options for people, um, meeting people where they are, understanding that also it's going to take them being consistent, like understanding what's realistic for you to stick with. If you're someone who wants to exercise more, but you literally don't exercise at all. Maybe the goal is let's exercise once a week. Maybe it's exercising for 20 minutes once a week and building from there. If you're someone who doesn't like vegetables, I'm not going to expect you to eat vegetables every day. (laughs) How can we, you know, you're at Chipotle. How can we add vegetables to that plate? It's finding those simple ways to kind of like not like make it just more realistic. So I think it's, yeah, providing options for people, having people understand like where the areas that I can actually improve on. If you want to be a morning person, but you're waking up at 10 AM and going to bed at midnight, then let's adjust your sleeping schedule. Mm -hmm. If you want to drink more water first, you have a water bottle. It's like, (laughs) it's, it's stuff like that, where I think it's so easy to like be on Instagram and you see like, oh my God, this transformation photo, this person did all of this. So I'm going to like, Chioma, I'm going to like be a vegan who exercises every day. And then I'm going to run a half marathon in three months. And I'm like, okay, good for you. But how are we going to build up to that? What is something that we can do every day to get to that larger goal and breaking it down? So, yeah. So we're still going to be talking about food, but we're going to kind of shift to specifically athletes. I'm curious how prevalent do you think disorder eating is in athletes today? It happens a lot because sports is so performance-based and performance-based off of how your body looks is a huge part of that. And especially for, for girls, I would say is the aesthetic side of it. And what we see on social media is to like, what's a real body versus a, you know, a surgically enhanced body. And knowing that, that the puberty age, your body is growing and developing in a way that you're not comfortable or used to and understanding that everybody's body looks different. So if you weigh more, like for me, I was over the over a hundred pounds in sixth grade. And I remember like being weighed for the presidential fitness test and like the PE teacher just Gemma, 110 pounds. And you're like, can you not? Right. Also like that was, I was the only girl over a hundred pounds. So for me, that felt like, is there something wrong with me? Because they're just yelling out everybody's weight. So now I'm hearing everybody's weight and thinking that there's something wrong with me for guys. They it's maybe thinking that you have to weigh more than what you currently weigh. So it's like eating, maybe more, um, taking on more supplements that are maybe harmful for your body in the long term when your body is still trying to develop and, um, and it needs certain nutrients or on the opposite side of the spectrum for, um, for boys, it's 
understanding that like shredded ripped abs isn't everyone's destiny mm-hmm. <laughs> at 14, 15. So if you think that, Hey, everybody on my team has abs, why don't I have abs? So I need to like cut back on what I'm eating. It's, it's sad. It breaks my heart because I get girls that will reach out to me on uh, social media saying like, Hey, I resonated with this post or, Hey, I realized that, you know, uh, the female athlete triad where, you know, women will lose their period. And then that leads to it's restricted eating because they have to, they're trying to lose so much body fat and then they lose their period. And then they're prone to bone injuries and osteoporosis is like early onset. And for girls, especially in soccer, ACL injuries are major. And so this is the time to be providing your body with all these nutrients, not starving it of nutrients because you're trying to fit a certain, um, ideal. So just goes back to coaches, players, parents, being mindful of the language they use around their players, like not, Hey, you're fat or Hey, why are you this? You need to cut back on what you're eating or Hey, like the words you use stick with people. Mm-hmm. And you said you have girls that send you messages talking about maybe a post that really resonated with them. When they write you, like, what do you tell them? I mean, obviously you can't sit there and like give them a diagnosis, but what do you think a youth female athlete needs to hear? You know, it goes, I think it goes back to teammates and coaches providing that safe environment for players, but also being mindful of like, Hey, if you're eating at a restaurant and you're, and it's your team meal, but you notice a play, do you notice that one player is always getting up every five or 10 minutes and leaving the table to go to the bathroom. That can be a sign of something. Are you guys making fun of a player because they gained weight or are you making fun of a player because they look a certain way? You know, like all of these things are first, I think a culture thing that players and coaches need to be mindful of. But when it comes to players reaching out to me, um, saying that they've resonated with a post or something, I try to push them towards resources, but most of the time it's been players that I know, like the clubs that they're affiliated with, like maybe they have um, reached out through like a webinar that I've done with a club or their coach referred me or something. Mm -hmm. So I will reach out to maybe the DOC and just say, Hey, I won't say the player's name, but I'm like, Hey, I had a player this age, reach out to me. Mm -hmm. This is what they're saying this should be on your radar as maybe these are resources you should start looking at to provide your athletes. So it's not taboo to talk about because I also don't want to punish the athlete for coming for reaching out to me to say like, Hey, you know, it's this player may not play anymore because they said these things, but it's, it's very slippery, but I try to make sure that it's coaches are involved. DOCs are involved. The player is getting help. And what are some of those resources? like mental health resources in general, I would tell girls to also just be mindful of who they follow. So I would say first to unfollow maybe some people that make you feel like you're less than or your body isn't like right, or there's something wrong with you doing a social media audit. um, I would push them to, uh, there's an app called uh, My Mind Sport. Um, There's other sports apps where it talks about the power and purpose of your role as an athlete and just understanding your body. Like psychology today has therapists that you can like go through, but I think more of it is just providing players with stuff that they can read. But I feel like social media is, is a good tool to meet them where they are. So I will suggest like accounts for them to follow, to try and lighten up 
their news feed with um, positive messages. And then just about you reaching out to the team, you said DOC, what does that stand for? A director of coaching. So if it's like a girls team, it's the director of coaching for like the elite girls, like, Hey, and usually there's always been like some form of relationship there. So it's not me cold calling, like, Hey, this player did this. It's like, I've done webinars with, with club teams. I've done um, speaking engagements for club teams. So it's usually through that. Um, but it's letting them know that, Hey, if you are having me come on and ask and talk about these things, be prepared to mm-hmm. provide these resources because people will probably speak up. But do you think for some youth athletes, like talking about food, maybe at a certain age is just too early. Like what age do you find that is a good point for whether this appearance coaches, um, being sure that they're getting the right nutrition. I think the conversations around food have been backwards since the start. I feel like food has always been talked about as like, okay, it has this many calories. It's going to like prepare your body for this, for this event and eat this, but food is much more than fuel for your position on the field. So it is identifying like, Hey, what are foods that you can cook that you feel empowered to that you enjoy to what are foods that you're not always relying on fast food or someone else to prepare your food for you, getting kids involved with what's on their plate. I feel like we're so disconnected with how food gets to our plate that we just like eat whatever is convenient and in front of us. So I wouldn't say anything is it's never too early to talk about food. I just think the language around food needs to be um, more of a, we need to be mindful of how we talk about food and not talk about it as like, this is what you should eat to lose weight. This is what you should eat to look this way. You want abs, do eat this and do this. It's like, it's not all about abs. It's not all about looking a certain way and getting away from like the aesthetic piece that comes um, around with food, but understanding like, what are your needs today? Do you have an exam that you have to study for? So let's make sure we're going to give you food that is going to like provide you the energy and the mental clarity to get through this exam, almost talking about food in that way and not in a negative way around how you look. And then when you become an adult and you're not playing anymore, you're not, what do I eat now? Because, and that's where I feel like a lot of athletes, whether they are in college and they're no longer playing professionally or professional athletes. And once they retire. And earlier you mentioned some misconceptions that athletes have in general regarding to trying to maximize their performance, but what is the most common mistake you see athletes making? I would say not eating enough. It can be a little scary sometimes to think that sometimes you have to consume like 3000 calories. If you're a guy who is about to, you know, you're, you're about, you play maybe all 90 minutes of the soccer game, like, but what kind of foods should you be eating? So if you just say, Hey, eat 3000 calories, somebody can just go, okay, Chipotle, it's 1700 calories. I just eat this twice. Okay. Beans and rice is going to take a long time to digest. Are you going to put steak or chicken in there? That may take a long time to digest. So that shouldn't be something you're eating one or two hours before your match. So it's understanding that even timing of how you're eating your food, giving your body enough time to process that food is, um, is major. So I would say not eating enough and then maybe eating foods too fast or eating foods without being mindful of like, when do you actually have to perform on the field Mm -hmm. and using supplements in replacement of food that they are nutrients that they might be getting from their food. I like to preach 
supplements uh, or food first before supplements Mm -hmm. and supplements are used like the word says to supplement what you're not getting. And then lastly, what advice would you give a young girl who looks just like you, who wants to pursue a career in nutrition and sports? Volunteer, um, get that experience because I would in the sports industry, it's, like I said, it's very performance based on how athletes will view you. It's um, knowing that athletes are looking to you to say, how can I be the best athlete on the field? How can I prolong my career? So I feel like once you understand that you're not forcing, Hey, you should eat kale today. They're like, I don't, how can you meet them where they are? But also there's a level of, you know, cultural sensitivity and empathy and understanding that it's not just about what you eat type of things, understanding the language, the needs of the athlete of just how a sports culture works. It's very fast paced and results driven to speak up and and see what you want to do and try new things. Don't feel like you have to niche into nutrition. Like I said, I, I did three different majors, but I held multiple positions in the sports industry. And I think realizing what I didn't like was just as important as realizing what I did like and enjoy. Well, thank you so much, Tioma. Of course, of course.